If you'd still like to apply to the Spectator's Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, there's time to do so. The deadline has now been extended to Friday the 23rd of June. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the successes of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to Martial Matters with me, Winston Marshall at The Spectator. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Michael Schellenberger, who, as well as writing the books San Francisco, Apocalypse Never, as a history of, as a, an environmentalist, also uh, ran as a Californian gubernatorial candidate and actually has the dubious honour of being my first return guest to Martial Matters. But since we last spoke, which I think was in October, November last year, you've had incredible run and your, your sort of life and career has taken another kind of swing and uh, as well as building up public your, your newsletter you're also one of the Twitter files journalists along with Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, Lee Fang, Dave Zweig, others David is, uh, I've had the pleasure of speaking to him as well and only last I think week or two weeks ago you exposed what has been called for the last three years a conspiracy theory about patients zero being at the Wuhan Institute for Virology. So there's, there's lots to discuss, but Michael, thank you so much for coming to speak with me today. Winston, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me back on. So actually, the reason you're in London is you're doing this event with your co-Twitter files journalist, Matt Tybee, as well as Rusty Rockets himself, Russell Brand, at Central Hall Westminster, exposing the uh, censorship industrial complex. For people who have no idea what the censorship industrial complex is. How would you describe it? Well, to answer that question, you really have to go back to the beginning of the Twitter files. So we were invited in. I mean, really, it was, as you mentioned, Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss were invited by Elon Musk and his associates into Twitter to figure out what was going on, because we knew that there was pretty significant censorship of disfavored voices, mostly conservative voices, but other voices too, for several years, and Elon was committed to some transparency on, as to what was happening. So we were given a pretty broad access to uh, emails and internal messages through Slack. And at first it was sort of a picture, and we published a series of things about there was just a lot of what you would call woke culture. 99% of political donations from Twitter executives had gone to Democrats. And so they were censoring things like you know, a one user, Megan Murphy, wrote in response to a trans debate, she wrote, you know, but men aren't women, though. And she was deplatformed for tweeting that. Graham Linehan, the British comedian who I've also had on the show, had exactly the same tweet, men aren't women, though, and was suspended from Twitter. Yeah, so that was clearly a cultural, a strong cultural and political bias. But then we started seeing something else that was very strange, which was requests from the FBI to deplatform people and people from the Department of Homeland Security, the DHS, which was the coordinating body created after 9-11 in the United States. And that was very chilling to start to see basically law enforcement and intelligence agencies demand that people be censored effectively by Twitter executives. How is that working? Is they were sending emails to those at Twitter demanding specifically things take down. And there was payment, there was money involved, right? Well, right. I mean, all of this is, of course, hugely contentious. And in fact, your conversation with the Telegraph reporter, because what was happening here in Britain 
was very similar. I mean, we were reading these stories that were coming out of the Telegraph that had been coming out of the Telegraph for the last several weeks. So the defenders of this practice say, look, this is just, you know, government officials flagging violations mm-hmm. of Twitter's terms of service. What could possibly be wrong with that? Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out there's a lot wrong with it. Um, there was, you know, basically the government officials, uh, both in the UK and in the United States, who were, who were requesting censorship of users we're getting priority access. So it wasn't sort of an equal opportunity thing. They were right there. So you see the, the Twitter is creating a bias towards government demands for censorship. The United States, we have even stricter protections of speech than you do in Britain, though they're very strong here too. But for the United States, it, you can't, the government cannot interfere in the rights of people to s- express themselves, except for in a very limited number of cases, basically around incitement to violence and fraud. And so even having the government requesting censorship by Twitter executives is, in my view, and the view of many legal scholars, a violation of the First Amendment of the Constitution. So then the money, this was, I was the first to report on this, is that we then started to see in 2020, Twitter started to accept payment from the federal government for its efforts. This was legally justified as the expense of Twitter executives having to engage in these activities. And there's a law that allows for compensation. If you're helping on a federal investigation or a law enforcement investigation, the social media executives can be compensated for it. But it's a clear conflict of interest. You're paying people to engage in censorship. And so there was a lot of debate about that and whether it was justified But to make a long story short, it was widespread. It was a very intensive and coordinated activity by multiple government agencies in the United States, in the UK, requesting censorship on myriad issues. We mentioned transgenderism, climate change, COVID was a huge one. I mean, maybe the most egregious is where White House officials demanding that Facebook censor people for sharing true stories about vaccine side effects. This is particularly offensive, it should be particularly offensive to progressives in the United States because there had been a huge effort to require pharmaceutical companies to name the side effects of their drugs in their television ads. And here people were describing the side effects of this drug on themselves and you had the government demanding that it be censored. The demand was made that It'd be censored, not because it was misinformation, not because it was disinformation, but because it was true information that might lead to vaccine hesitancy, Mm. to a reluctance on the part of people to get vaccines. So we're now, we're in 1984 Orwell territory at this point. So that's sort of malinformation. Malinformation is what they call it. Okay, true information that's inconvenient. Exactly. Uh That results in, that make result in behaviors that we don't like. Well, at that point, I mean, you could justify censorship of anything. And so you're dealing with, I mean, you can involve the philosophers here. I mean, you're engaged because in Because any idea games. could lead to a bad outcome, sure. Uh, absolutely. And we know that people make up all sorts of reasons for different kinds of behaviors, and people defend behaviors retroactively for different reasons than they had at the time. I mean, you know, there's a whole long tradition of philosophy of language that looks at how people reason. And so you're basically giving a br- very broad justification for censorship, and it just... As you might imagine, it just spiraled out of control and you saw abuses of power right away. And I I hasten to add, we struggle ourselves to find the right language to describe the kinds of things that we were seeing. 
On the one hand, it's censorship, and in some ways that's the easiest to understand. But there was also propaganda and disinformation being spread by government officials. One of the Twitter Wait, files... So what's the difference between propaganda and disinformation? Well, that's a, also a very good question, and it's not clear that there's a very good answer to it. Propaganda, on the one hand, is just government public relations at the simplest level. Disinformation is what we call propaganda by other governments that we don't like. But even that word got, what we saw was government contractors in the United States and former government officials, including former CIA officials, saying, well, we were concerned about Russian disinformation in the 2016 elections. Already by 2018, you saw the same people saying, well, it turns out that actually most of the disinformation is coming from ordinary Americans. So suddenly we have a turning inward Mm. of a word that, by the way, had been used in context of warfare. Mm. So one of the most famous examples of disinformation, disinformation that those of us in the West support was the use of the ghost army in World War II so that we made it look like we were going to invade, or that the Americans were going to help the Brits to uh, invade Europe and fight the Nazis across the, the, the channel. Mm-hmm. Instead, of course, we did it through Normandy, but they created this fake ghost army. That was disinformation or what we might call psyops, mm-hmm. psychological operations. So disinformation, which was just used to describe Russian efforts to sway the 2016 elections, very quickly then became turned inward. And that's one of the themes of this work, is that we saw people that had been involved in the war on terrorism after 9-11 had a huge amount of success. Uh, reducing and fighting terrorism around the world, suddenly you have this huge apparatus for fighting terrorists that had nowhere to go, and it's it, it turned inward after 2016, partly in reaction to Brexit, partly in reaction to the election of Trump. And so this was a very disturbing trend, and so we start to see the intelligence and security agencies of the United States officially and unofficially get involved in suppressing mostly populist, mostly conservative voices, but also some left-wing anti-war voices, COVID dissidents. And one of the things I wrote about was the effort to basically run a disinformation campaign around the Hunter Biden laptop, which surfaces in October 14, 2020, a New York Post article. What we saw were former government officials, including many former directors of the CIA, we saw former FBI officials, including ones working at Twitter. The Is that deputy, Jim Baker? Jim Baker, the former chief counsel for the FBI, took a deputy counsel role at Twitter, internally making the case that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. Which, by the way, is a crazy conspiracy theory when you consider here they had Hunter Biden's laptop, They had the subpoena from the FBI confiscating the Hunter Biden laptop in December 2019. And when was Jim Baker at the CIA? Uh, Jim Baker Baker arrives at Twitter in the summer of 2020. So he would have known about the Hunter Biden. Well, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Ostensibly, there is compartmentalization of information, Mm -hmm. you know, need to know. But I mean, he was, I mean, general counsel of the FBI is arguably as powerful as the director. They need to be involved in multiple FBI operations to make sure that they're legal. That's the role of the, one of the roles of the general counsel of the FBI is to make sure that the FBI is not breaking the laws Mm -hmm. that are supposed to constrain them. 
So the FBI confiscates the Hunter Biden laptop in December 2019. They give the computer store repair owner who had the laptop and it gave it to the FBI. They gave him a subpoena, which is almost like a, in that case, it's almost like a receipt mm-hmm. that we have it. We have the receipt signed by Hunter Biden mm-hmm. dropping the computer off. The New York Post publishes both of those in their coverage. And then you get this cockamamie conspiracy theory suggesting that somehow the Russians had hacked Hunter Biden's computers and then put them on a computer. I mean, the more straightforward story is that Hunter Biden, at the time, well-known alcoholic and addict, dropped the computer laptops in his bathtub or in a pool. So you have basically former government officials, ostensibly former government officials. And by the way, one of the things that you hear when you interview people in the intelligence community is they say nobody ever leaves the intelligence community. Well, that's, inter- that's interesting because I just want to talk about the case of Jim Baker for one second because it would be easy for people looking for examples of collusion to just be like oh look there's a revolving door between government and big tech look take Jim Baker he was there back and forth but it's also possible is it not that he could have just had that job you know ended that and gone in for a different industry is what evidence do we have that he's still there's a really revolving door or, or that there's really collusion there in, in the sense that the same people are going back and forth. Well, in the Twitter files I did on the Hunter Biden laptop, so if people want to look at look at it, they can just Google Schellenberger Hunter Biden laptop Twitter files. So yeah, files. you did part, that was part seven of the Twitter files and you Sorry. did part four, which was January 7th. Yes. And then part seven, which was FBI and the Hunter Biden laptop. Yeah. 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 And we can come back to the decision to deplatform Trump because obviously it's a massive moment in the history of social media. But in the case of the Hunter Biden laptop, I mean, I mean, so first of all, Jim Baker had been in and out of the FBI. So that revolving door had already occurred. He'd gone in and come out, went back out, came to Twitter. And what was so striking is that the team that was assigned the task of deciding whether or not the New York Post article about the Hunter Biden laptop violated Twitter's terms of service, they came back and were very clear that it did not violate their terms of service. Therefore, there should be no censorship or restrictions on that tweet or on that account. The case then was made internally in Twitter to censor it anyway, and it was made by Jim Baker. He made it most forcefully He made it in multiple instances, both in uh, internal communications, in a Google Doc where they were discussing and shaping a kind of response to it. He was very strenuous, by far the most strenuous person making the case that it was Russian disinformation on the basis of absolutely nothing, on the basis of total speculation of just kind of word salad, basically, to censor it. And he ultimately won out. And, you know, the way that bad things happen often is by telephone (laughs) so that there's no record of them. So the fact that we have such extensive written, I think it's fair to assume there was a lot of phone calls going on as well. But um, it was after Jim Baker's intervention that that Twitter executives did decide to censor the New York Post article. I also, this comes back to this earlier point I wanted to make, which is that to understand what's going on here, it's not mere censorship. It's also always disinformation and censorship or what the people involved in this call an influence operation or an information operation. So the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop tweets by the New York Post were so significant in my view, not simply because it restricted access to that content, but because of what it communicated. It was saying that Twitter felt that this was disinformation. And so 
for me at the time, I was a Biden voter, a Biden supporter. I thought Trump was chaotic and and was like many Democrats at the time felt it needed to go. I looked at the Hunter Biden laptop and I also thought that it seemed like, you know, it was two or three weeks before the elections. It was, you know, Rudy Giuliani was involved in it. It was New York Post rather than the New York Times. Uh, you know, like many liberals at the time, I had a very snobby view of the New York Post. And so when Twitter and Facebook said that they were censoring the content, for me, that was another black mark and another reason to think that it was not true or that it was not accurate. So the censorship itself is part of the influence operation, even though they, and they, everyone points out, people that defend the decision, they say, well, Twitter lifted the censorship after a few days, and that's true. But I think the stigma yeah. remained on the content. So it gave people reason like me, gave people reason to believe that it was, in fact, Russian disinformation when it wasn't. It was mm. actually exactly what it appeared to be. Well, there's another aspect of it which is sort of typical of this and, and I think important to understanding how a lot of this operates is the Russian disinformation aspect itself. And this is something that Tybee, I believe, in the Twitter files exposed. The Hamilton 68 group, which was then the foundation of Jacob Siegel's phenomenal piece uh, exposing the censorship more broadly. And the Russia disinformation is in fact a hoax and that's the kind of thing that I think is still not quite understood. I wonder what your opinion on that was on the Russia or maybe how would someone who doesn't understand that the Russia hoax how could you explain it to them? Well the easiest way is you go back I mean you look at 2016 there were efforts by people with ties to the Russian government to do basically two things run ads on Facebook and also have fake accounts or what are sometimes called bot accounts to try to influence the election. Everybody who's looked at this, every independent scholar who's looked at this say they cannot find any effect of either the advertising or the fake accounts. They were just drowned out by so much other communications on those Couldn't platforms. find the effects of it. But I thought that we had agreed that there probably were Russian bots, yes, but that there were not many of them. Exactly. Right. But then the Hamilton 68 group, what's important about that is, is that that was a government-backed group specifically designed to spread the disinformation that there was Russian disinformation. That's right. Right. That's right. So, but just to sort of back up, after 2016, you have this allegation that Trump won with the help of the Russians. There was never any evidence to show that any Russian involvement had any impact on any voters. You know, to give a sense of it, most Republicans got their news from Fox News, not from Facebook. But even the communications that we could tie to Russia just were trivial. I mean, it was just in a wash of information online. Mm -hmm. So it was grossly exaggerated to start with. Mm -hmm. Then you get to 2018. And one of the most important figures in the censorship industrial complex named Rene DiResta, a former CIA fellow, at least allegedly former, then at Stanford and also at a, at a political organization that did campaigns for Democrats, does a Senate intelligence testimony testifying to some and grossly exaggerates the effect of the Russians. And then you get to this thing called Hamilton 68, which is part of a think tank called the Alliance for Securing Democracy. And what Taib, my colleague Matt Taibbi discovers is that what they were doing was calling genuine users Russian bots as a way to discredit them and to get them censored on Twitter. Or more importantly, I would argue, it was a way to generate a lot of news media coverage. I mean, dozens, maybe hundreds of news articles were written 
claiming that Russian bots were active on Twitter and really trying to get people to see Trump supporters, populists, populist right type users, trying to get them to see them as Russian bots. This is a really important aspect, which I hope we can come back to this, is the legacy media's complicity in the complex of it all. And also now seeing there's no, even though this stuff has been exposed, not only are they ignoring their participation in it but that well there's no attempt to correct the record uh, or they'll ignore the story completely as with the twitter files huge story legacy media pretty much ignored it there's very little reporting of it well worse than that they participate in it mm. i mean really the dark view of it is that they were participating in the disinformation mm-hmm. to give you a sense of it knowingly you think well that's interesting because that gets into questions of intention which are hard to read but the scariest moment for me in the twitter files was stumbling across an aspen institute workshop that they called a tabletop exercise which involved all of the major news media, New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, NPR, Daily Beast, Wired, participating alongside the so-called trust and safety professionals, this, what we call the main censors at Facebook and Twitter, in an Aspen workshop in the summer of 2020 to basically coordinate how they are going to cover and not cover potential Hunter Biden scandal. Hmm around Burisma, the mm. natural gas company that he worked for. and it The was- scandal there, by the way, is that on the laptop, there's an email which says, thank you, and this is to Hunter Biden, from, I think, the, one of the advisors on the Burisma board, saying thank you for the opportunity to meet your father. Right. That the, the 10% for the big guys, the China, that's a China right. thing. And, but then Biden has denied ever meeting. So we don't actually know that Biden met anyone on the Burisma board. But there's the one email which says, thanks for the opportunity to meet your father. Sorry. Yeah. Well, and I mean, look, I mean, the Hunter Biden laptop, what it shows in a nutshell is his son and uh, Hunter Biden and the president's brother just engaging in influence peddling. Whilst Biden was VP. While Biden was vice president. And now we're in the midst of a huge news scandal in the United States alleging uh, direct criminal bribery involving the president. And there's a huge conflict between the Congress and the FBI to try to get some of the documents and the whistleblower and the witness to it. But basically, yeah, you see these two family members, the son and the brother, selling access to the father with some idea that that they will be able to influence his decision making. I mean, that's why people would pay for the influence Mm -hmm. and disturbing stuff. I mean, it's not I think that the people that sort of wave it away They kind of go, well, that's how it works in Washington, but it's not how we should want it to work in Mm. Washington. And even if it were entirely legal, it probably shouldn't be. Or at least it should be something that voters should know about Mm -hmm. rather than... uh, You shouldn't censor the story. Let them know about it. That's (laughs) That's the... Or spread propaganda about it, misleading people about it. So yeah, but the participation of the news media, in some ways, it's the main event in the sense that the decisions by Twitter and Facebook are certainly important. Mm -hmm. But when you have the entire mainstream news media telling you that the Hunter Biden laptop is not what it appears Mm -hmm. to be, Mm -hmm. it basically allowed for swing voters, the people that would determine the election, to dismiss this very important piece of information. And But what was creepy about it was that it was orchestrated. So you saw all of these news media with the social media representatives engaged in these Zoom conference calls where they were basically planning how they were going to not cover or or cover in a manipulative way this big story. And this has to do with 
what's called the Pentagon Papers Principle. The Pentagon Papers, of course, is the very uh, famous decision by Daniel Ellsberg, who just passed away to when he was a Defense Department analyst to steal, I think it was in 1969, a set of documents from the Pentagon showing that the United States was losing the war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. It was considered a very courageous decision by The Washington Post and The New York Times to publish these stolen documents. It was the subject of a Steven Spielberg movie called Mm -hmm. The Post about The Washington Post decision to do this. This was considered a triumph for the First Amendment. These documents had been stolen. Daniel Ellsberg risked prison to steal these documents in order to get out this very important truth that the U.S. was losing, not winning the war in Vietnam. What you saw in that Hunter Biden workshop in the summer of 2020 was an effort to undermine this very fundamental journalistic principle that you should publish those documents, even if they were stolen. Mm -hmm. The journalists should be protected under the First Amendment to publish those documents, even if they had been acquired illegally by a source. So what we saw was in that workshop and then also in a prior white paper by a Stanford think tank, an attack on the Pentagon Papers principle. And the attack was basically the following. It was, you must not emphasize the content of those documents. You should instead emphasize how they were acquired. So if some negative information were to come out about Hunter Biden before the election, you must emphasize that they were almost certainly the result of a Russian hack and leak operation, as opposed to maybe Hunter Biden just dropped his laptops in his bathtub and and then took them to the computer store. Wow. That's another level. I mean, in this country, we had uh, recently Isabel Oakeshott, who was hired as the ghostwriter for the health secretary uh, during the pandemic, man, Matt Hancock. And she published or, or, or handed over the his WhatsApp messages, which included him saying he wanted to scare the pants off the British public as a way of controlling them to get through the pandemic. And the response that she got was that instead of the other journalists being like, wow, look at what the government were doing. They went for her and the ethics of, of her leak. Right. Which is, it's, exactly you thought the that same. the priority is to hold the government to account first and foremost. Okay, sure, there's problems with the ethics of, that's an interesting conversation to have, but it's not the first conversation you have. You, you actually discuss what the bloody government were doing. Well, you're right to make that comparison. It's, I see these things happen here in, in the UK. We follow it pretty closely and it's identical basically to what's going on. So what you're seeing are basically state propagandists within the government in the United States and in the UK trying to shift the focus for journalists. Mm. And that's always happened. That's what state propagandists, that's what their job is. Um, But what's shocking about it is to see the way the journalists are participating with the state Mm. as opposed to having a much more skeptical or even antagonistic role. Mm -hmm. In the Spielberg movie about the Pentagon Papers, there's this sort of defining moment where Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post, has an argument with the defense secretary, Robert McNamara, and they're friends. You know, they have dinner parties together. It's very clubby. And he gets very angry at her and threatens her, and she stands up to him. I mean, that's sort of the that's sort of what it means to be an independent journalist. Mm-hmm. Well, here we see the government behaving thuggishly with the journalists, and the journalists sort of going along with it. Mm-hmm. And I think it has to be understood as well as part of the elite panic after 2016. Mm-hmm. Trump derangement syndrome is a very real thing in Washington and among, you know, not just liberals in general, but really elites who I think felt that Trump and Brexit combined 
represented a threat to the liberal world order. So is that the core of this huge phenomenon, you think? It's Trump derangement system. That's the thing at the very root that's motivating the energy, let's say, behind the censorship industrial complex. I think so. I think that it was preceded by what Martin Gurry calls the revolt of the public unleashed by the internet in general mm. and by social media in particular. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, suddenly, I mean, you see this moment in 2016 where Hillary Clinton refers to Trump supporters as a people that you could put in a basket of deplorables, mm -hmm. the unwashed, you know, the math, the rabble, there's some sense in which Twitter and Facebook are allowing ordinary people to speak. Ugh, mm. horrible, right? Mm. These, you know, these these common people with their typos and their poor language mm. and their crude ways. And so there was a kind of disgust at the ability of the masses to speak in the ways that they were able to with the rise of social media. And then, of course, attributing Trump's rise and attributing Brexit, same thing, to social media, which ironically or not ironically... Most scholars do not attribute, I don't actually know about Brexit, um, but they do not attribute Trump's victory to social media. It is something a lot of people would say. He took advantage of Twitter and certainly gave him a way to do that. But ultimately, I think most political scientists think that Trump wins by really some powerful uh, debate performances, embracing a more nationalist and populist message. And so I think you have a, a deliberate or, or accidental misattribution of Trump's success to social media. The reason it might be deliberate is because they wanted to gain control over these technologies. And they basically did achieve that. After 2016, you saw incredible, you know, it's one thing to try to control all of the major news media, but you're talk, they're talking about like 12 powerful news organizations or, or two or three, if you just look at the New York Times, Washington Post. But when you only have really two, Facebook and Twitter, to really as a chokehold on the entire discourse and also as a means of, of spreading propaganda or disinformation, uh, it's a whole new ballgame. There was a lot of talk in the 2016 election that Facebook was how yeah, he, he wanted. Do you think that um, how did you get the information earlier? You said this earlier in the conversation about the uh, Facebook having being in contact with government because you Twitter was exposed. But how have you got that about Facebook? How do you know what's going on there? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. So the Twitter files was not the only way to understand what was going on inside the social media companies. The other thing that was going on is that the attorneys general, the top attorneys for the states of Louisiana and Missouri, sued the federal government for censorship by federal government employees by putting pressure on Facebook and Twitter. And so they achieved a bunch of discovery, the right to get emails and whatnot. So we have these emails from the White House mm. to Facebook demanding more censorship. And we also have the same people are the same people are making the same demands on Twitter. Very aggressive government officials, Rob Flaherty, Andy Slavitt are the are the two officials. They're a little bit like the Matt Hancock here, I mm -hmm. think. Calling, berating Facebook and Twitter executives that they're not censoring enough. And in that lawsuit, we start to see Facebook bending. We've seen those files bending to the will of the White House. You have to remember after 2016 elections, when Democrats start saying that Facebook, the social media is to blame for Trump's victory. Mark Zuckerberg, the creator of Facebook, just thought that was ridiculous. And he said so. He mm. just, it, it, it was absurd to him that Except Facebook that could have had that role. But you saw the pressure was so intense on Zuckerberg between 2016 and 2020. By 2020, 
many senior executives had come from not just American intelligence and security agencies, but also from British ones. And there's always a justification for it because these are people that were good at doing investigations. These are people that are, are they understand what's going on in places like Myanmar, where mm-hmm. Facebook had been abused to contribute to attacks on the Rohingya. So there's always some sort of justification for it. But you start to see basically the capturing of Facebook and Twitter by U.S. and U.K. intelligence services, mm-hmm. ostensibly retired officials. But again, if you believe what people in the intelligence services tell you, nobody ever really retires. Yeah. I'm going to ask a question which might be a bit too much mental gymnastics. But I, I, but I wondered whether you think, we mentioned right at the beginning of this conversation, 9-11, 9-11 and the Patriot Act getting, leading to stellar wind. That, if you take that sort of trajectory as linked, once we, we're starting to buy, wanting to protect the people, and what, that sort of policy turns into, you know, through the telecommunications, uh, watching everyone and, and looking over everyone, as Snowden revealed. And I wondered whether you saw that as analogous to what's happened here with the Russian disinformation. That's the original, that's the 9-11 thing, which has then led to this sort of idea that, yes, the policy, we need to cut this stuff out, or whether that's part of the same story, whether Patriot Act, Stellar Wind, into the Russian hoax, is, that, is there a lineage that these oh, yeah. are all connected? Oh, for sure. It's, it's a single, unbroken chain from 9-11. Uh-huh. The only other piece I would add to it is this idea from Peter Turchin that we're dealing with the overproduction of elites. We have a lot of highly educated people with nothing to do in our societies. And when the overproduction of elites meets the counterterrorism world and they succeed wildly Mm -hmm. in the war on terrorism, you have suddenly a bunch of people that don't have anything to do. They start to sort of turn inward. Mm-hmm. And then 2016 provides a kind of new reason for existence. Well, I should actually add color to that because it's more analogous than that, even because that's when ISIS started to make serious yeah. gains in Syria, as well as the movement in Ukraine, the name of which I've forgotten, where those movements were using social uh, media. So this is actually very similar, I think, to the 9-11 situation. Very similar. And in fact, ISIS came up a bit in our research too. One of the main leaders that we've, we were always drawn to because she was one of the smartest people in the room when there was Aspen workshops and other venues, people talking about so-called Russian disinfos, this person, Renee Duresta, the former CIA fellow, her whole story, which I always found very suspicious, was that she was just an internet entrepreneur and became concerned about anti-vaxxers online. But then the next thing you know, she's involved in battling ISIS for the White House. It was a very <laughs> rapid rise to the top, let's say, from somebody who claimed to be just a mere hobbyist. So for sure, the battling of ISIS recruitment online was also one of the predecessor activities to to the big event in 2016. Well, actually, you can go further back than 9-11, and I think this is what Jacob Siegel does, is he goes back to McCarthyism and the Privacy Act of 1974. Was that correct? Maybe I've got that wrong. But the, the lineage goes back even further. Oh, for sure. That. Yeah. What, what do you think about um, the global engagements of the GEC, which is the sort of Obama's agency, the counter-disinformation campaign? What are the leading groups of disinformation that we should be focused on? 
Well, that is definitely one of them. The Global Engagement Center, it it can be overwhelming, honestly. Matt Taibbi and his team created a list of 50 censorship organizations. These are both government agencies, but also government-funded contractors, think tanks, groups like Aspen Institute. I worry you could very quickly get into alphabet soup here with Mm -hmm. with a huge number of organizations. But what I think is important to remember, too, is that there's something called the Five Eyes Nations, which at the heart of it is really the United States and Britain. It comes out of World War II where we do joint surveillance together. And it's, it includes Canada, Australia, New Zealand as well as, as more junior partners of it. But nonetheless, it's important to engage in surveillance. One of the aspects of Five Eyes that we've always known about is that nations will spy on each other's citizens to evade the, the restrictions mm-hmm. of not spying on each other's citizens. So one of the groups that has targeted me personally is a British organization called Mm. the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, Uh has been funded by the Defense Department in the past, has been funded by the British government in the past, and is now out there claiming that I'm a climate denier or a climate delayer both of which are absolutely untrue. Well, I've not heard that term, climate de- delayer. Well, What's... the idea is that I'm suggesting that we don't need to do something about climate change. Anybody who knows my history over the last 10 years knows that I'm one of the most high-profile advocates of nuclear power in the world, I have advocated for building nuclear power plants in Britain, uh-huh. keeping them operating in the United States and building new ones around the world, So, in part because of climate change. So the idea that I'm a climate de- delayer is just disinformation in their own mm. language. I just did a piece yesterday where I pointed out that these people that want to censor me, and by the way, the point of writing a report attacking me as well as Bjorn Lomborg and Jordan Peterson as climate deniers and climate delayers, the whole point of that is to deplatform me and prevent organizations like the BBC or the New York Times from interviewing us or having us included. That's fine. It's a ca- character assassination. It's a, it's a character assassination. Effect. It's very yeah. specific. As soon as I saw this report, of course, I asked to interview the people that wrote the report to have some sort of conversation with them so they would correct the record. They have absolutely refused. Hmm. And so what I've pointed out is there's something quite pathological about this. You have the people that are demanding that I be censored, refuse to stand in public conversation or even in a podcast interview with me. Hmm. This is, you know, at least in the Spanish Inquisition, you had a chance to respond to your interrogator. Uh Um, So there's something pathological about this. On the one hand, they're so arrogant as to think that they should decide what the BBC and other news media are allowed to cover and what people should be exposed to. And the other hand, they're so insecure and so small that they refuse to stand for public debate with me. So while we're here in Britain, I intend to go to their offices and directly confront them and demand that they have a meeting with me Mm. because this kind of behavior is unacceptable. This is how you get to totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. You know, people point out, well, Michael, you're you're still free to have these conversations. You have a Twitter account and you're still out there. I am actively being censored on Facebook at this very moment. I wanted to ask about that. So how specifically is Michael Schellenberger being censored right now? I'll give you one recent example. We just broke the story of who the first three people who got sickened by COVID were. They were three people working in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We have from multiple sources within the U.S. government the names of these individuals. We broke the story with Matt Taibbi as a joint project with Racket and Public. We've had incredible access to whistleblowers and witnesses because we stood up to members of Congress who berated us publicly and people trust that we will protect our sources. Huge story. 
On Twitter, it had been viewed, according to the, the public count, over 5 million times. Wow. I shared it on That's Facebook. Huge. And five people total, not 5,000, not 5 million, five people total had shared it with under 100 comments. I mean, it's an explosive story. And it was absolutely being censored and suppressed on Facebook. I know that the moment I was censored on Facebook because it happened when my book Apocalypse Never came out in 2020. Similarly, the, the Facebook executives refused to meet or respond or even acknowledge my existence during the censorship. The subcontractors that orchestrated the, the hit on my reputation refused to speak with me. It's not just wrong, and I condemn it, but there's something quite pathological about this. Mm -hmm. um, our societies, the whole principle of free speech is that even people who are wrong, mm -hmm. uh, that the society is made better by having the debate. This is Voltaire. I mean, this is, I will defend to the death your right to be wrong publicly. It's all the more frustrating in, in your country and mine, your country, obviously, with the, the Second Amendment, uh, sorry, the First Amendment uh, uh, in the Bill of Rights. And in here, you know, this is the country of John Mill writing Areopagitica and in, the, in the 17th century. This, this, these are the nations that should be bastions of free speech. Oh, we, we've somehow forgotten that the significance and the importance of it. And it's, it's shocking to me. Well, this, this kind of gets at the nub of it, which is, you know, why is this going on? And we keep coming back to 2016 or the rise of the Internet. But there is something else here, which is that there is cancel culture. Cancel culture precedes the censorship industrial complex mm -hmm. by many years. Cancel culture is the idea that you should not speak, that your words create harm. We, we followed very closely the, the controversy here with Kathleen Stock and mm -hmm. the attempt to prevent her from speaking at Oxford. Mm -hmm. uh, the intervention by your prime minister that she should be allowed mm -hmm. to speak, her wonderful remarks about the right to offend mm -hmm. and the importance of that. I mean, I find myself slightly bewildered and disoriented by having to make the case for free speech. Yeah. Something that I, I would have thought would have been so basic or even sort of cringe to have to speak out about free speech because it just seems so obvious. I mean, who would need to defend free speech? But here we are in a situation where we have to tell young people in particular that they should not be protected from things that they find offensive. Mm -hmm. That being offended is part of being alive. Mm -hmm. Having negative emotions, having negative reactions, feeling angry, feeling mm -hmm. upset. This is part of what it means to be fully human. And the idea that adults or somebody should protect you from that, it's absolutely absurd. And But what we've seen that's so disturbing is the tapping in to that extreme culture of intolerance by the censorship industrial complex. So you can sort of see on the top is an inorganic censorship industrial complex, 50 big organizations, powerful government-funded organizations, and at the bottom is this organic... It's, it is supported by a lot of people. Absolutely. And we see it now turning... It's ev it evolves. It's very adaptive. So we see the censorship industrial complex. First, they say we have to worry about Russian disinformation. Then they say we have to worry about COVID. Then they say we have to censor dissident views on climate mm. change. Now what we're seeing, and this is the article today in Unheard, is we see the United Nations. We see... Former President Barack Obama, which breaks my heart. We see many world leaders. We see the European Union claiming that there is some increase of hatred in our societies and some increase of hatred online. Mm. 
look, Western societies are more tolerant of racial, religious, and sexual minorities than they've ever been. Mm-hmm. I mean, by orders of magnitude. I mean, imagine your grandparents. Uh, imagine how homosexuality was dealt mm. with in our societies. Mm. One of the, my favorite statistics is that in 1958, 4% of Americans approved of uh, whites and blacks being able to marry. Mm-hmm. Today, it's over 96% mm-hmm. who say that uh, white and black people should be allowed to marry. The level of tolerance is incredible mm. by any historical or global standard. And yet here you have prominent leaders suggesting that the people are some, somehow filled with hatred and that the online environments are somehow full of hatred. I think it's an absolute case of psychological projection. They're the ones who they absolutely hate. When you hear Hillary Clinton saying they're deplorables, yeah. when you see this condemnation of ordinary people for expressing Genuine aspirations for self-government. Mm-hmm. We saw it with Brexit, right? That anybody who supported Brexit uh, was somehow a racist, mm-hmm. somehow intolerant. Uh, I find it uh, very troubling. It, it makes me very upset and angry because I, I, I think it, you're calling somebody, you're totally misidentifying their motivations and you're suggesting... You're finding that, the worst possible uh, motivation for The worst possible thing to say yeah. about somebody. So... We talked a little bit about the UK and, and you mentioned Kathleen Stock. And so actually, Rishi Sunak has appointed a free speech czar, which is Arif Ahmed. Mm. And so there is suggestion that the current government under Rishi do have an appreciation for free speech. At the same time, there's the online safety bill, which is going through the House of Lords at the moment, which is being debated, which would, as far as I've understood, give power to the tech companies of California to decide what can and can't be published, which brings us to back right to the beginning of this conversation. And also what's happening now, and I believe some of your team are in Dublin, because there is the Criminal Justice Incitement to Violence or Hatred and Hate Offences Bill 2022, which is about to go through, which again is reducing speech deemed hateful, not just inciting violence, but deemed hateful. But then what is hateful? Does it, is me hating hate, is that hateful? Right. Like, where, where's, the, where's, the, where's the bounds of that? Yes. Uh, w- coming in from uh, America and What's your opinion of these things that are going on over here? Extremely disturbing. Mm -hmm. And all of it happening simultaneously. We've created a document that's available to the public. And people can find it on our website at public where we just document what's going on in all Mm. these different countries. It's very scary. So it's happening everywhere. It's happening in the EU. It's happening in Britain. It's happening in Ireland, Brazil, Canada, United States. In every country, there's a slightly different angle to it. And we are still trying to figure out exactly what the pattern is, but it's clearly coordinated. We know it's coordinated because we see things happening simultaneously, similar justifications being used for censorship, similar cast of characters. Mm -hmm. It's World Economic Forum. It's Jacinda Ardern Mm -hmm. from New Zealand. The Christchurch massacre then led to a call for greater censorship. She then now is at Harvard, mm. heading up their censorship center. We see at Stanford. She? Yes, huh. she is. Stanford just announced a new... They, they already had two censorship organizations. They just announced a, a third one. So we're seeing it at think tanks. We're seeing it in top universities. We're seeing it at people that in the revolving door out of these intelligence and military and security organizations... So it's happening everywhere. Ireland is shocking. That law would allow the police to go into your home, search your phones and computers. If they find so-called hateful materials, 
determine that you are guilty until proven innocent, guilty of a plot to disseminate those materials. I mean, Ireland, I mean, I mean, people, you know, Brits know Ireland, Americans, we love going to Ireland. I mean, the friendliest, mm. most tolerant people in the world. Yeah. I mean, what's this idea that somehow there's been some eruption of hatred? I mean, it's quite disturbing because, and I, I will say though, can't leave it with this, but I will say the pushback is also working. Just simply describing these efforts we, for example, we, we saw Obama claim some big increase in hate. I've noticed that now the message. There's been a few claims that there's increase yes. in hate. Oh, under Elon Musk, there's more hate on, online. And we, we've seen in California. Heard that there isn't. You don't agree with that notion. Well, okay, so here's a great moment here. A BBC correspondent in the United States secured an interview with Elon Musk. James Clayton. James Clayton. Sat down with Elon Musk. Uh, to put it mildly, Mr. Clayton was not prepared for this interview. He walks in and he just repeats this claim that anti-Semitism had increased on Twitter since Elon Musk had taken it over. Where did he get that claim? From the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, the very same organization that's spreading lies about me. Hmm. As soon as this went viral, I read the report. It took a matter of minutes for me to find that they were classifying tweets critical of George Soros and the World Economic Forum with no mention of Judaism or Jewishness or anything, or even of Kabbalah, just... Tweets critical of George Soros and the World Economic Forum, they had classified as anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. Garbage in, garbage out mm -hmm. is what we call that kind of analysis. But that's pervasive. In California, there's a California initiative to crack down on hate online, and they claim an increase of hate incidents. Well, you look at the data, and what you realize is that they are not accounting for reporting bias, meaning that there's been an increase of reports of hate online. Does that mean that there's been an increase of hate online? Well, of course not. You can easily imagine that when you start tracking a phenomenon, the people tracking it get better at detecting the phenomenon over and over again. In fact, psychologists have written a major research has been done on this, which is called concept creep, meaning that we know that what people consider harmful speech or hateful speech is increasing. So the very same, the, we see it, the reaction to having Kathleen Stock speak at Oxford, this demand from students that she be censored, we see that in the culture, this cancel culture, this woke culture, coinciding with the intolerance from the rise of social media, the reinforcement of your pre-existing beliefs. So what we're seeing is so this is self-reinforcing. Yes, it reinforces us. Yeah, we need more censorship. Look at the hate that's going yes. around. This is just a cycle, and it, it just doubles everything down. And the social fear that's created. You know, my I have people in my family who are Zoomers in their early twenties. When Black Lives Matter happened, they felt incredible pressure from their friends to put a black square on their Instagram. Why don't you have a black square on Instagram? Why don't you have a Black Lives Matter sign in your yard? Is that because you're a racist? I mean, it was a culture of fear mm -hmm. this is a mccarthyist it's the crucible it's witch hunts it's it's the attacks on posey parker on mm -hmm. kelly j keen and this fear that i will be accused manifesting as me accusing others so the accusation of racism or transphobia mm. the accusation of that upon others as a defense mechanism to protect myself from being accused yeah. Social media, of course, magnifying and intensifying it. That's one thing, and that's disturbing. You would want your 
leaders, your cultural, political, social leaders to push back against that and say, hey, let's all calm down a bit. You know, we're all more tolerant than we've been in decades. Yeah. Anybody who has any historical memory will know that. To see them then taking advantage of it and using it as a pretext for censorship is very chilling, very disturbing. We need to call it out in every instance. Mm -hmm. And I will say it does seem to work. Since our efforts began on this and we started calling out this global effort to impose what I think has to be called a kind of totalitarianism, a kind of censorship of the kind that George Orwell warned against, I do think it's had an impact. And so what we've seen now is, including on the United Nations, their social media posts, they start talking about how there's a lot of hate as opposed to making the claim of an increase of hate uh. because they knew they don't have that. Hmm. It's still disturbing for them to go around there, hate, hate, hate. You know, it's like, who's the hater here exactly? Yeah. You know, I mean, what is the United Nations doing? Yeah. An organization where the Declaration of Human Rights very explicitly protects free speech. Mm. And they're supposed to be, you know, spreading brotherly love. Mm -hmm. What is the United Nations doing here? Yeah. Spreading this idea that hatred is rampant when there's no evidence for it and demanding censorship. So, yeah, I mean, I do think I took great hope from the prime minister's intervention on the Kathleen yeah, uh, stock. I think it suggests that, you know, later today or and over this week, I'm looking forward to interviewing ordinary Britons on the streets yeah. and asking, how would you feel if the government were secretly reading your direct messages? Because uh -huh. that's where this is headed. How would you I feel? I mean, they already the, are, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> but to do so legally, I guess, <laughs> to have some legal justification for it. I don't think ordinary people want that. Mm. We saw with the Edward Stone revelation. Oh, I would change you on that because the old me would have been like, I've got nothing to hide. I'm yeah. happy with the government. And where I've changed is I no longer trust the government and, and, and see how they act. And I don't want them reading because I don't want them trusting the government. But yeah, if we're fighting terrorism or we're fighting whatever yeah. the baddie is of the moment, I'm happy to, for you to read my uh, thing. So I think most people probably don't care. That was a tragedy of Snowden. He said, my greatest worry is that I will sacrifice my life for this and no one will care. And that's pretty much what happened. Very few people give a damn. I think in the abstract, I think that's true. If I haven't done anything wrong, what should I be worried about? But I think if you ask people, would you like to know if, if somebody taking an experimental drug that's being prescribed for your children is experiencing side effects, would you like to be informed about that? Or would you rather that the government just censor that information? I think most people would say, yes, I would like to know. I would like to know what the consequences of experimental drugs are. I would not like to mm. have a small number of experts. Would you like the government to decide whether you can hear a full range of arguments for or against whether Britain should be part of the European Union? I think most people would like to see a broad range of arguments. Mm -hmm. But I think it gets back to the, the point where we started with, which is that we find ourselves in the strange situation of having to make the case for freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. And I do think there is a difference with surveillance, which is that I do think people after 9-11 in particular accepted a fair amount of surveillance of their communications in order to prevent a terror attack. You have many more CCTVs in Britain you know, than we do in the United States. Mm -hmm. There's much uh, more tolerance of that in Europe than in the United States. And I think there's, uh, you know, and there's some justification for it. And there's certainly, you, we can get very paranoid. But I do think that when it starts to get into censorship, and somebody else deciding what information I should be allowed to read and write, mm -hmm. I do think it goes too far. And I do think the public will be with us, but I do think it's going to also take some effort. And that's why we're here. That's why, we're, that's why we came to Britain, is that we felt that this was something that needed to be a joint U.S.-U.K. effort. Mm -hmm. We see our governments cooperating in quite negative ways, and we felt like we needed a, some sort of societal response to say, hey, 
let's get back to kind of what started this whole Western civilization thing in the first place, which was that ordinary people should be allowed to have voice. Mm -hmm. You know, Winston, I mean, one of the things, I'm not a First Amendment expert by any means. I'm not a constitutional scholar. I don't know much about the history. But one thing that comes out when you read the histories of the period is there was always a question of, is free speech sort of instrumental for democracy? Is it something that you just sort of need to have so people know how to vote the right way in a democracy or so you can have free markets? Or is it something much more fundamental and something much more what we call natural right? Thomas Jefferson in our Declaration of Independence he called it an inalienable right mm. given by God, not by not by a piece of paper. That's an important point, by the way, given by God. And I think that that's part of the bigger problem we're seeing is that God is dying again. And so we don't agree in that. So we don't have that underlying concept to bind us all together. But maybe that's another conversation <laughs> for another podcast. Oh, for sure. <laughs> oh, we, absolutely. But I will say atheists uh, have long been able to make a justification for it as a natural right, as mm. something, or even if you want to get fully postmodern, it's a right that we establish, we articulate, we, we demand of ourselves. But for me, I find myself much more in the latter camp. It's not just a means to an end. Free speech, for me, it's like eating or breathing. I mean, to be deprived of it. And it really helps to be deprived of it, to realize how precious it is. That this idea that we should be able to express our own thoughts and that we should have a right to hear what other people think. It touches something much deeper in me, at least, than just, oh, it's a way to have a functioning democracy or a functioning free markets. It's about being human. Mm -hmm. It's why it's a fundamental human right, according to the United Nations, mm -hmm. according to the American Constitution, and not just something that we allow you to have because it makes things work better. I can sense that you're trying to pull this conversation together, but you are I don't want to be the next James Clayton because you are a bit like Musk in that there's so many interesting things that you're up to and, and you've done that I could easily miss them. And there's a couple of things I wanted Let's to just sure. quickly ask you about, if time permits. Uh, firstly, about Twitter. I followed the Twitter files closely. Anyone, I think, who is skeptical or cynical about legacy media, which pretty much ignored the whole thing, was following it on Twitter. And we could see by the numbers of people who were engaged on Twitter that it was a big story. But being on the inside, on the other side of the curtain, and what was the atmosphere like? Was it excitement? When you oh, yeah. pulled up to the Twitter HQ in San Francisco, was this like, oh my God, this is the... Or were you like, were you cynical about the oh, no. thing? What, 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 <laughs> what was it like? It was thrilling. I mean, so I came in through Barry Weiss. Uh, I did not know Elon Musk. And in fact, I'm maybe the, the person, the journalist who has been most critical of Elon Musk for the supply chains to make you his... Have. I am. Yeah, and I have been for 10 years in fact, I criticized Elon Musk directly in Apocalypse Never. And so... About solar panels, I remember that. About the solar panels. And you may know that the solar panels in China are being made by Uyghur Muslims, who most of whom are in concentration camps. The supply chains for lithium batteries is very... Not most of them. One to three million dark. of them are. But yeah, sorry. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's not great. You know, the, the supply chain for producing oil and gas has high paid workers, many of whom are unionized. Mm -hmm. in much more safe conditions. Uh, people have seen... Anyway, I could go on about it, but I have criticized uh, Elon Musk in the past for that, but his taking over of Twitter was clearly done for the right reasons. People may know that he massively overspent to buy the company. He certainly could afford it. He's the world's richest man. 
Key right reasons you mean not for money, clearly, but no. rather it was mission driven. Absolutely, he was a, he's a free speech guy. Absolutely, to say I don't want to suggest that he's not. I mean, obviously, he has powerful business interests, and we should be cautious around how those are represented on the platform. Yeah, there's how a dedicated to free speech has since been. Yeah, uh, proved it's, it's a little bit uh, absolutely. Unfair. And I, I've testified to Congress now on this twice. First time on the censorship, but the second time on big tech and. My view, just to get it out before we get into Elon and Twitter a little bit more, is that the solution to this is, is mandatory, re- legally required transparency by the social media platforms. So Facebook and Twitter, the First Amendment, said, one of the things is it, it prevents you from being forced to say certain things. And so you can't compel speech. That's another kind of censorship. So, it's a, so you can't compel Twitter and Facebook to allow you to say certain things, but you could compel them to be transparent about what kind of censorship they're engaging uh-huh. in, who's being censored, but also who's being deplatformed, who's being deamplified, meaning having their content spread. That should be open. And I think there should be a right to respond. So I should have a right to know how I'm being censored by Facebook and I have a, should have a chance to respond. Mm. That means I can go onto other social media platforms. I can criticize Facebook. In fact, I've done this on other platforms and and try to make my case elsewhere. So th- I, I put that out there. I think Elon and Twitter should be required to have that level of radical transparency. I will say, and of course I've, or maybe not of course, but I've also said this to Elon directly multiple times, see that he should be more transparent about the decisions that are being made. And he has been more transparent than the previous owners. He complied with a Turkish government request to censor Turkish journalists. There's a legitimate debate to be had about whether he should have done that. But when he because did it, the alternative was that Twitter would be taken down completely in Turkey. That's right. And they had lost it. They had appealed many times in the courts and the Turkish courts and lost. Mm. And to his credit, he did publish on Twitter. They tweeted out the actual legal documents and the names of the people that were being censored. That's a huge improvement huh. over what Twitter had done before and certainly what Facebook was doing. But inside Twitter, I mean, you know, Elon himself is... Uh, a very intense personality. I mean, it's, it's a little bit, I mean, you know, what you see is what you get. I think with Elon, he's a very intense personality. He's making jokes all the time, some of which are more successful than others, but certainly he's a major joker. He loves to make jokes. So his shit posting isn't just reserved for Twitter. Oh he's, no, he's no, it's he's going on all the time. as well. Okay. No, I mean, there were certainly moments <laughs> where we're sitting there because we're getting the files and we're like, we don't know how long we're going to, you know, you're, you feel a little bit like you've just, uh, it's like a smash and grab situation. You know, you're trying to, <laughs> is that right? Many- so you, you come in, you're at the computers, presumably you had an engineer or something, someone to help you. I mean, I don't know how tech savvy you are and, and, and you're kind of, how did that work? What was what was the actual process? Yeah, we would put in these search requests, and of course, but this at this point there was three kind of well known journalists: uh, Barry Weiss, Matt Taibbi, me. But we also had our colleagues with us. So there's a, at times there was a room of seven or eight people plus the Twitter staff making many many requests. Them coming in with the files. I saw no evidence that anybody had gone through the files before they gave them to us. They were just doing these searches and these were very large document drops. And so we were going through, you know, thousands upon thousands of emails and internal messages. And it was, yeah, we're a sweaty conference room, you know. Uh, did you, you didn't know what you were computers. looking for exactly? We didn't know. Well, we did in the sense that there had been events 
so for example, the Hunter Biden laptop mm-hmm. was a huge decision. And Matt Taibbi covered that already by the time I came in. I saw things around it that I felt like I needed to take a second crack at it. So mm-hmm. I did a second round on the Hunter Biden laptop a month after I think Matt did. Barry Weiss looked at some of the key people who had been deamplified. We discovered that there were secret blacklists. Mm-hmm. They were actually called that, uh, called uh, blacklisted basically for deamplification. One of whom was Jay Bhattacharya, who's a very famous uh, critic of COVID skepticism, a professor at Stanford. We did the Trump deplatforming. This was a major event. So you have January 6th is the famous uh, Capitol riot. January 7th, there's a lot of internal debate and really the decision is made at that point. Really a decision to deplatform Trump, even though the Twitter staff themselves had decided that Trump's tweets had not violated their terms of service. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the patterns of behavior is that Twitter was just making up stuff as they went along. And to some extent, that's understandable. That's what happens. You're a new company. But here they had a terms of service that everybody agreed to, and they were just finding justifications to kick Trump off the platform. And then the final decision was made on January 8th. And so when I got in there, Barry and Matt had decided to split up January 6th, 7th, and 8th. They gave me what I think they thought was the, le- the less important date, which was January 7th. But uh, sure enough, it turned out to be uh, important, an important yeah. date yeah. because it was where you could see the staff trying to kind of invent justifications to deplatform Trump. Then really the floor dropped out from under us is when we started to see all of these government officials, FBI officials, DHS, yeah. White House, uh, making demands on Twitter. And that was when Matt started in particular because he had had so much experience looking at the military industrial complex. He started to look at the role of these orchestrated campaigns like Hamilton 68 to basically demean ordinary Twitter users as Russian bots. Then it goes full circle again, or goes back round again, I should say, because you go to Congress for the hearing and you are grilled. And this is the people elected to uphold free speech in America are then grilling you for exposing censorship of the government. I guess the government themselves trying to hide their, their dirty work. But you guys look like you're having fun. You and Matt. Well, no, I know I Barry was wasn't fun. there. <laughs> you're kind of looking at each other, giggling at this. You know, you were asked if it was a, some sort of freesome. It was. It seemed farcical and, and amusing to you. Well, it was amusing to me in part because they were going after Matt. They had already demonized me. Democrats and progressives had already demonized me in 2020 around Apocalypse Never where I say climate change is real, it's not the end of the world, we're going to solve it with natural gas and nuclear power. That was already heretical. And so they felt like they had already done their number on me, so they needed to focus their attention on Matt Taibbi, who's also a much bigger personality, has three times more Twitter followers than I do. Very successful Substack writer, very famous in the United States. And so they really focused all of their energy on Matt. Mm -hmm. And when they kind of came to me, the famous moment in that hearing was that the... The member of Congress, they kept trying to kind of make it seem like there was something wrong with us doing the Twitter files, like there was something improper or maybe illegal about it. The night before, one a government agency, they had released, the members of Congress had released documents showing that this Federal Trade Commission, which regulates Twitter and other social media companies, 
had basically been demanding that Elon Musk reveal who all the reporters were who were involved in the Twitter files as though we were doing something wrong or illegal. And so one of the members of Congress kind of clumsily was trying to figure out my involvement. And she said, well, Elon invited you in. I said, no, you know, it was actually Barry Weiss had invited me in. And she said, so then it was a threesome. And the whole room just erupted into laughter because you have to remember they're up above you. You know, you feel like you're kind of down and small, you know, looking up at these members of Congress and they're sort of accusing you. And DC is a very unfunny place in many ways, very square place. And so, but the room just erupted into laughter. I knew enough from uh, having listened to comedians to know that you should always let the laughter die down before you respond. And then I said, there was many more people involved than that now. (laughs) And that got another huge round of, of laughs and it was, uh, it was, <laughs> and it, well, of course, you know, Barry Weiss is a very famous lesbian. She's maybe mm-hmm. one of the most famous lesbians in the United States. Her wife is Nellie Bowles. They both worked at the New York Times. And when this went viral on Twitter, Nellie responded in all caps, how many more people were involved, Michael? <laughs> so, you know, it really went on and on like that. Elon was just delighted with yeah. it because he's a big prankster and jokester mm. and, and so, and there had been some conflicts and controversies, and but it felt like at that moment all was forgiven. And I think the Democrats, it was the Democrats because it, I there think was one Republican, I think, who was probably challenging those Democrats. Yeah. But do you think the motivation of those Democrats are going into that? Firstly, they're obviously completely ill prepared. They didn't seem to know the topic whatsoever. But they almost took you as the enemy. So there was no good faith. What's their motivation, you think? Are they trying to protect their colleagues? Are they try- are they, is it Trump derangement syndrome again? Is it, a, there's almost must derangement syndrome yes. in, in America. They just assume, oh, he's baddie now. It's, it's, is, it, is it that tribal? What, what do you think, what the, the energies at play there in, in that? Uh, I mean, incident? the sad part of it is that the Democrats, the truth is they want more censorship. They want more censorship by online platforms of disfavored views of what they consider hate speech, mm. of the so-called deplorables. I mean, and this is, I, I genuinely, it is genuinely sad because I was raised a Democrat. I was very progressive, uh, radical left as a young man. You know, when I graduated from high school, the Supreme Court had a ruling that you could burn the American flag. Republicans were aghast at this. Mm. The Democrats felt like it was a victory for free speech. ACLU defended the right of neo-Nazis to march through a neighborhood of Holocaust survivors in Skokie, Illinois. So the Democrats and liberals were the party of free speech Mm. for most of my life. And that really starts to change with the rise of cancel culture and wokeism in the really the late in the 2010s or so. And so the Democrats, yeah, they want to see they want to see more censorship. Um, Is it an indication that they have power, you think? Because it's if you're in power, you're the one who wants censorship. If you're not in power, yeah. you don't. You want free speech. So is, right. do you think it's a, maybe a, a simple black and white sort of scenario? I think it has to do with that. I think, I mean, look, if you want to get really deep in it, I think wokeism is an effort to create a new secular religion as a substitute religion. And so there's a fervency here. There's a dogmatism. There's a kind of an intolerance of and a sense that words are sort of magical and they have a kind of magical spiritual power Mm. to them there's all these taboos Mm. that you're not you know you can't say that trans women aren't real women that's Mm. a taboo thing to say 
you know, it's taboo to suggest that ISO, you know, it's, it's, it's taboo for me to say that I can't make myself a woman, but I could make myself a black man. Mm. That's totally taboo, even though it's arguably less ridiculous. Mm. There's taboo to say that climate change isn't the end of the world. Mm. These words have a kind of, there's so much heaviness in the language. Heaviness and inconsistencies. Yeah. yeah. And so I think there's, there's some of that is just irrational. By all accounts, the Democrats lost that congressional hearing. You know, they're here berating journalists, accusing us of not really being journalists. Mm. The very moment that we were testifying in front of Congress, the IRS sent an agent to Matt Taibbi's home. Huh. We know that the IRS investigation of Matt Taibbi began the day, Christmas Eve day, December 24th, the day that he wrote a Twitter files thread describing CIA involvement uh-huh. in Twitter files. Wow. In the case against him, they actually, the IRS case against him, they sort of included some of his written materials. So it's clear harassment. Wow. So it's the tax as well. I mean, it's, it's tax, it's FBI, it's the intelligence community, it's b- big government, it's, it's, it's and, and then also it's coming from a, a big swaths of the population. It's an abuse of power, so for this, sure. The, the sense of industrial complex is indeed complex. It is. It is complex. It involves a lot of different, and it involves, you know, it comes from Eisenhower's famous warning about the military industrial complex, which was really a warning about government contractors and military contractors having too much influence over the decisions of members of Congress or the executive branch. Hmm. So, yeah, it's coming from all sources. I mean, I think that that was a very dark moment in Congress to be, to have those attacks. It had that levity in it. But I think the Democrats, they just went too far. Hmm. And so we saw many, many on the left on Twitter from very progressive publications who themselves reacted to this. At the end of the day, journalists don't want to see other journalists being persecuted in that way. I do think there kind of some sense of self-interest kicked in, but I think we're at the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. I think we need some serious engagement with the public and, and with members of Congress to remind ourselves that, you know, these, the tables turn very quickly mm-hmm. on this kind of thing. And you mm-hmm. start going after journalists. The next thing you know, you know, Republicans might be in power and start abusing these, quite these institutions. It seems like an obvious point to make, but obviously one that needs to be keep making. So, Michael, this is just the, the beginning of you explaining the, the censorship industrial complex. You're in London, Central Hall, Westminster, this Thursday with Russell Brand and Matt Taibbi, two lefties who, again, seem to be uh, believe in the importance of maintaining free speech. And uh, I'm sure they have a whole bunch extra to add to this, as I've already said several times, complex issue. But what's your hope for that event and moving forward? In practical terms. Well, first, Winston, we're grateful to you for all your support in helping to pull it together. You've been an absolute jewel to work with, and it's been a real pleasure making friends with you over the last several months. It's been a great pleasure. And yeah, I mean, we want people to show up and be there and participate for us. The burden of protecting freedom of speech can't rest on the shoulders of Elon Musk, as broad as those shoulders are. Certainly can't rest on my shoulders or Matt Taibbi or Russell Brand. We do need a proper movement we are starting to find each other. I was very happy to see that the British government had also been engaged in surveillance of Carolyn Lucas, I guess the head of the Green Party of Britain, uh-huh. somebody with whom I disagree on most issues, certainly nuclear and natural gas. But I do think that there's an opportunity here for people that are from various political persuasions to see that free speech really should be a common cause for the people. So our hope is that we'll have that event on Thursday night. We are gathering a smaller group of free speech leaders on Friday. And our aspiration is to have a free speech alliance 
to battle against the axis of censorship, which uh-huh. is spreading its tentacles across the Western world and beyond. Uh-huh. Wonderful. Well, I wish you all the best of it. Thank you for coming back to Martial Matters, and I hope the next episode maybe we can get into UFOs. That can make it the... <laughs> the, the and God. <laughs> UFOs and God, indeed. Michael Schellenberger, thank you for uh, speaking to me today. Thanks for having me, Winston. Thank you.